Amen. Thank you, choir, and all our musicians for the music this morning. We appreciate it so much. I want to take just a minute before we turn to our scripture from Revelation. Uh, a story broke in the news. Maybe you saw it uh, through one channel or another. Uh, out of Texas, out of Houston, Texas, the Houston Chronicle released a story about the molestation of children in Baptist settings. Very troubling story, and it's, it's popped up on all kind of news channels or avenues. Uh, and I just would want to make a couple of comments about that to be encouraging. If you compared out of the 40,000 churches, Southern Baptist churches in America, uh, the numbers that they're talking about is such a small percentage of what happens in Baptist life that it, one time is unacceptable, granted, and, and tragic when a child is uh, bothered in that kind of setting. Uh, but the magnitude of the Southern Baptist world, it's a very small issue, but one of great concern. Uh, but it will be magnified in the media as a really big deal. And so understand uh, that every Sunday morning and seven days a week, 40,000 Southern Baptist churches uh, are in operation, uh, operating with great concern for the safety of all in general and children and youth in particular. Uh, that's true at First Baptist Church. Let me tell you a few things that are going on here right now while we're in here uh, for you to know about that you may not be even aware. Uh, every time we gather on Wednesday night or Sunday morning, Sunday night, there's a Dublin city policeman that has been recruited by the church that's here, an off-duty policeman, and he has a usually a marked police car. You see him often up on the old Catholic property. He positions himself so he can see several parking lots and the people coming and going from several buildings. And uh, he's here in all those time frames uh, and is uh, standing by to help in any way necessary. Sometimes comes in a building, but mostly he's out there where he can see the big picture of what's going on and sometimes loops through the campus. Every... Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Wednesday night, unless there's some very rare exception in which a staff person usually fills in, uh, one of our deacons is the guard of the day. Greg Rogers is protecting us right now as we speak. He's over in the Sunday school building and there are two big halls and the deacon's desk is at the intersection of those two right outside the entrance to our nursery area. And that guy's there to watch what's going on and be tuned in and heads up and has two television monitors, both of which have 16 images on that from 16 different cameras around our church facilities. Uh, every time somebody goes in the front door of the family center and comes back out, it's recorded by a camera. This is not Big Brother watching you, but uh, it has been used a couple of times to solve a couple of mysteries already. The police have used it uh, when we were robbed in the church office. But our Gideon guard, our deacon guard uh, in the Sunday school building is sitting there watching those screens and can click on any one of those 16 images and zoom in and see very good pictures of what's going on in particular zones of our property. There are lots of rules that uh, Jerry can explain to you someday about our children's area and the rules we have about more than one adult being present in all settings. And uh, the rules behind that, our Georgia Baptist Convention or Georgia Baptist 
world will not allow our youth and youth workers to go on an event unless all of our people have been security cleared and we do background checks on everybody. It's no big deal uh, unless you're a criminal or have a, a bad past, but uh, if your background is checked, you won't even know it happened and, and nobody will see it but one person here at the church and it's not me and uh, that will, nobody will know if you got a traffic ticket or anything else. It just will show to the church you don't have a troublesome area where you shouldn't be involved working with young people. So all that's in place all the time here at the church, and it's under the radar, and you may not be aware of it, but all that's just part of a mindset of we care about you all and the safety of you coming and going to your automobiles, but we care especially about the children and the youth of the church. And so all those efforts are in place on a regular basis, and you need to know about that and be encouraged by that when you hear troublesome things in the news and wonder what's going on at our church. It's not a perfect world. It's a sinful, troubled world, but uh, we want to respond and be uh, careful as best we can. Well, we have been looking at the book of Revelation a lot on Wednesday nights and some on Sundays in here, a few passages, and we want to go to chapter 19 this morning. It gets pretty exciting. It's, It's a long haul through the book of Revelation. But when you finally get down to these last chapters, it really begins to get exciting. It comes alive. If you were to go to England this morning, it'd be this afternoon already over there, uh, you'd certainly want to go to Parliament and see Big Ben. But if you stood in front of Parliament's building, there are really only two statues. In a city filled with monuments and memorials and statues, there are only two in front of Parliament's building. Up on the northern end of the area is Oliver Cromwell standing on a pedestal and there are two symbols associated. He's got a sword and a Bible and that's very deliberate in the imagery that's there. And Cromwell guided England when there was no king between Charles I and Charles II. After he died it didn't work out too well and they went back to having a monarch. But he was the Puritan warrior And the image there of that statue hundreds of years later is the sword and the word of God. And the English people wanted to preserve that imagery. Now if you went a little down to the south from there, 100 yards or so, uh, maybe even less, you would come to the other statue and it's up on a a marble pedestal. uh, And there's a horse with a rider and the rider is... Richard the Lionheart, Richard the First. He was really only king for about 10, 18, uh, 1289 to 99. Just 10 years in there. 1189, I've lost the years. Only 10 years he's even king. Most of that he was not in England. He went off to fight the Crusades. So why, is, why is he there? If he's only a king for a short time and... Uh, Most of that was out of the country. Why Richard in front of Parliament? Why is he the primary statue in front of the government building of the country? Richard's great-grandfather on his mother's side had been the king of Jerusalem. And I think Richard probably wanted to be the king of Jerusalem more than he wanted to be the king of England. But he went off and led the Third Crusade and finally came back and was taken captive on the way back. And in his absence... His brother John, his lesser brother John, lesser in character, rules, and he's not a good guy and ends up signing Magna Carta and all that history takes place that some of you learn. 
But here's this image of Richard in front of Parliament on his horse, and his crown's on his head, and his sword is lifted high. On the side, uh, there's an image of him on his deathbed, and he's pardoning the guy who shot him with an arrow with a mortal injury. He's going to die from that injury, but he's pardoning the guy who shot him. So here's this heroic character, this great crusader, country of England chooses that as their image, Great Britain's image of a great leader. The warrior king bearing his sword. And he, like Cromwell with his sword in his Bible, he becomes a picture of good and being a champion of good and setting things right. It's almost like for 800 years they've sat around and said, oh, if we could just have a Richard again. Nobody else has ever named Richard Again, they're not a string of Richards like the Williams and the, all the other king's names. If we just had a Richard the Lionheart who was committed to truth and committed to taking care of the common people and setting things right, wouldn't that be great? And every time Parliament goes in the front door, they look over and they see Richard and say, that's the standard uh, that we would pursue righteousness and guard and protect the needs and the rights and the, the, the purposes that God has ordained. A long time ago, when I was a boy, a grade school kid, one of my favorite things to do was play with toy soldiers. And I had a castle, and I played Robin Hood, and I played Knights of the Round Table, and, and all the things with knights and castles and all that cool stuff. And my highlight experience, theater experience growing up, with my dad took me down to the Fox Theater in downtown Atlanta for a special showing of not one but two Robert Taylor movies from the 50s. Knights of the Round Table and Ivanhoe. It was just, too, it was just off the charts. It's just too good to be true. That these two old classic movies would be shown together, and my dad and I sat there, for hours watching knights and armor and all the swords and all the cool stuff. I went home and worked on my castle after that. If you watched through Ivanhoe, some of you probably studied Ivanhoe in school or read that along the trail. It's a long story, in the movie especially, the, the, the end of the story finally happens. It's all about Ivanhoe, the Saxon knight who's loyal to King Richard, the Lionheart, but Richard is sort of under the radar, and he's, he's kind of in disguise in places. But at the very end of the movie, when Ivanhoe has fulfilled all of his purposes of being a hero, Richard rides in. And Richard has got his crown on his head, and he's dressed in white with a red cross across him, and he's followed by a host of soldiers on horses. They're not white horses, but they're dressed white. And they have red crosses everywhere. And Richard rides in, the victorious king who's now back from the Crusades. And people are seeing him for the first time in years. And John, his brother, is, of course, very disappointed because he thought he was going to be the king. And he would end up the king. But in the movie, it ends with Richard's back. And everything's going to be all right because Richard, the Lionheart, the righteous one, is back. Now, that's a book. 
and it's sort of tweaked history. It's, it's rooted in history, uh, but the book helps it to be a, a good story for us. But the Bible talks about not Richard the Lionheart, but the Bible talks about a righteous ruler who returns. And he returns in all of his power and his glory. It's far more glorious than Richard coming back to London. This is Jesus coming back to his creation for his people. Last Wednesday night I was talking about chapter 18. We're working on what... Chapter 18 is not as exciting as chapter 19. But chapter 18 is about the fall of Babylon. Not the ancient Babylon of the Old Testament... This is a new Babylon, and that old Babylon label is applied to it. But then there's the mystery, well, what is this new Babylon exactly? And it's somehow tied to Rome, and there's all these mysterious things. But it is a symbol of things evil on planet Earth. And in chapter 18, it's collapsing left and right. And even the Antichrist turns against the, the harlot that's associated with the Antichrist and all that's unraveling and collapsing. It is doomed and it's falling under judgment. And you come to chapter 19 and the early verses are a bunch of hallelujahs and celebration and music because of the doom of old Babylon. That, that, that symbol of evil is collapsing. But the king is coming. The king is on his way. That's the context and the backdrop to the passage we look at for a few moments together this morning. Chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened. Or I saw uh, the doorway of heaven having been opened. It stands open. And John's looking through the door in the book of Revelation. And then by way of writing, John's going to invite us to look at what, or try to look at what he sees. And we can't see it. So we're dependent on John to describe it for us. He says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. John says, behold, look, look, church, look, people. There's heaven, and and there's a white horse, and he who is seated on it is called faithful and true. You know, of course, that Jesus is faithful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, where we're not perfectly faithful, Jesus is. Uh, where we struggle with truth, Jesus is the very definition of truth. And you can take what John says here. Is these are two adjectives describing the writer. Or you could say, no, that's just two more names for Jesus. He is faithful. Uh, he is true. That's his n- names. Uh, he is the very person of truth. John says, look. There he is, seated on his horse, like Richard at Parliament. There he is on his horse, faithful and true, and in righteousness he judge, judges and make his, makes war. In righteousness he judges and makes war. That imagery of those statues, whether it's Cromwell or or Richard back in London, it's, it's like, these guys, if we could just have people like this again, we'd have righteous rule and righteous judgment. And everything that we did would be glorious and victorious and it would be right. And John says, there's what you're really looking for. Don't go try to get Cromwell back. Nice guy. Famous character. And Richard's not the answer. 
This is who you need. He is faithful. He is true. He is absolutely righteous, whether he goes to war or he sits in court. Everything he does is right. Everything he does is just. That's our Jesus. And John's, John's seen so much. Boy, you just go home and read the first 18 chapters. And what John has almost endured to get to this point is... It's overwhelming. Here's all this stuff going on, and, and now John says, but there, there it is. He says, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. It's sort of a crown with maybe things hanging on it, or kind of like Arab rulers would have things on a, a band around a, a head covering. Uh, but the, the diadems represent different zones of either geography or authority. And John's image of Jesus is he's in charge of lots of things. This guy's not going to come back and be the president of the United States or the prime minister of the United Kingdom or the president of France. This guy's going to come back and be in charge of everything. He has many diadems on his crown. His crown is multifaceted. Nobody's ever ruled like this guy. There have been those who have tried to conquer the map and have assembled various territories and empires for a season, and they all ultimately fail. But this Jesus will come with many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So someday, maybe in heaven, you'll get to learn one more name for Jesus that's not clear here. We don't know exactly what that's about, John apparently doesn't fully know himself. He just knows there's, there's something else. There's more labeling there. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And there are two ways you can take that robe. Here's uh, like Richard and Ivanhoe. When he's, he's dressed in white, and all those with him are dressed in white. Uh, fine linen. They're, they're all dressed in the very best. And everybody's clean, but one person, everybody's spotless except the lead guy. And Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. So what do you do with that? Some of the old commentators like to say that's the blood of Jesus from the cross. It's a symbol, an enduring symbol of his atoning death. I like that. That may not be what it means, but I like that idea. If that is what is intended by revelation here, it would be a perpetual reminder that that hero warrior who's come for the church is the one who paid with his blood for the sins of the church. It's a marvelous thought. It's great theology. It may not be what Revelation 19 is about, but it's a great thought, and, it, it's, and it's true. When you see Jesus someday... Uh, whether his robe is spotted with blood or not, you be quite mindful, you will be mindful that he paid the price of your sin with his blood. The atoning death, the finished work of the cross of Calvary a long, long time ago. It's uh, popular among the, the present commentators to say it's not his atonement blood, but it's the blood of battle. And all the warriors with him are unstained, but uh, Jesus is stained because of his battle on behalf of the church, the, uh, the elect, the people, his people. 
and he has gone to war for them and done so consistently, and now he comes to claim final victory, uh, but the, the blood is there as a reminder of the price he has paid through the clash of good and evil down through the ages. Well, you can work on that. That's your homework. Go home and study the, the options for the first half of verse 13. And John says, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, those of you that have searched the Scriptures a lot and you know the book of John, you know that's a really big deal for John. Same John's writing Revelation that gave us the Gospel of John. And John triggered that great, that, that may be the greatest book in the Bible. It's right up there with Romans and Matthews and who, how do you choose? You, you don't need to. But John's Gospel begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God. Uh, it's a way of saying Jesus the Word is deity. And here it shows up in the glorious return of Jesus. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Everything that the Gospel of John uh, has taught us as we go through all those chapters and study the life of Christ. Here he is. But in this context, it's not as he was. It's who he is in his return. The Word of God is back. The one who did all those things John describes in his gospel. He's back. This is the living Word of God. The communicating second person of the Trinity. The Word has returned. The word has returned in absolute victory. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now in Ivanhoe, the, the horses are brown, black and brown horses, ordinary horses, but they're all robed in white. Uh, and that Old English imagery is there to project, I think, what Revelation 19 is talking about. The righteous king is just a uh, sort of a visual aid to kind of get you thinking about the true righteous king of kings. And here comes his army, and they're all decked out in perfection, in fine linen. Not the normal garments you would expect for warriors. It's all white and clean. Everything in their existence has been perfected because of their leader whose robe is stained. They are riding in perfection and they're following after him on great white horses. I don't know why a white horse is better than any other kind of horse, but apparently in biblical imagery it is. It's a symbol of uh, victory and conquest. And it says, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now Richard in the statue, his sword is in his hand. It's being lifted high and aimed toward something arbitrary out there, but uh, a symbol of power and victory and conquering. But Jesus' sword comes from his mouth. It's not what he holds in his hand. That's what he says. The powerful, authoritative word of Jesus Christ. You know, your Bible teaches you that Jesus is the creator God. He's not a created being. He took on humanity, but he's not a created being. He's the creator being. And Romans, uh, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, all talk about that reality. The creator God, and he speaks our world into existence. 
Oh, the foolishness of men trying to explain how we got here without God and how there's order to this universe with no God designing it and sustaining it. It's absolutely, it is impossible to eliminate the God of the Bible and have anything close to what we have today. You can be an atheist and agnostic as long as you want to, but you are uh, in uh, scary territory trying to describe how any of that happened or, or holds together without the Creator God. And it's our Jesus. The power and the authority of His Word. He has a, uh, from His mouth a sharp sword so that He may strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty or God Omnipotent and other translations. Don't take Jesus too lightly. Don't downplay the, the character of Jesus. Jesus is awesome. He's the, yes, he's the suffering Savior. He's the gentle teacher. He's the one that holds children and blesses them and heals the sick and raises the dead, but he is an awesome warrior God. And John says he comes here and he treads the winepress. He's not stepping on grapes. This is judgment. This is final judgment. And just like a, a wine worker stepping on the grapes, he's crushing out evil once and for all as a warrior king. He presses that. It's, uh, there's string of genitives, if you like, language, but he treads the wine press of the wine of the anger of the wrath of God. There's a stack of them. Of God, the Almighty One. This is our Jesus in his victorious return. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Now, I don't know why uh, they say on his thigh. Maybe, just, maybe that's just his uh, garment. Some, there's one guy that says it was really originally in Aramaic and it got translated when they did it. They messed up and really it should be banner. And so it's uh, on his robe and on his banner. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's, 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 he's labeled. I'm taking a projector to Zambia to be used there that's got the Jesus film on it. And the biggest challenge is getting it there without it being stolen or uh, being intercepted at the airport and me getting taxed a couple hundred dollars just to get it back out. And the, they try things like that. Uh, if it looks newish, uh, so this brand new system that's got all these parts, it's, it's amazing. We're going to show you one of them uh, here and show you the Jesus film soon. But I'm trying to personalize it and make it look not as new and make it look like it is my system. And so I've been putting names all over it. I've got First Baptist stickers and Bible verse stickers and my name stickers on all the different components that go into that to go back in it to make it look like uh, it's just my thing that I'm taking over there, which is really the truth. I'm just going to leave it behind. And here comes Jesus dressed in his linen robe with bloodstains on a great white horse, and he's labeled. And the label's awesome. The label has already come to us in chapter 17. You go back on your own. 
I don't have it on the screen, but you go back in chapter 17, and you'll find him described there as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You come into this chapter, and it's reversed back around to that which you're used to because you learned it probably more musically than from Scripture, uh, from the Hallelujah Chorus and things like that. Handel. But he's labeled on his clothing, and, and John's looking. But look, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a label that says, Jesus, the old American Puritans used to talk about no king but King Jesus. Uh, there are other kings, but we might say, no king like King Jesus. He's a king over all other kings. Those kings may not acknowledge him or be submissive to him or have a spiritual clue. But all the kings, all the kingdoms, all the earthly authorities are inferior to, infinitely inferior to, and will ultimately be submissive to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. He is king of everything. There's no corner of the globe of planet earth that will not be under the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Get used to that idea. Get excited about that idea. He is the Lord of lords. There's nobody in charge of anything that out-credentials Jesus or even comes close. He is a Lord's Lord. He is the ultimate Lord of all things. Now, if He is the Lord of all lords, if He's the Lord of lords, if He's the perfect image of lordship, uh, what would that say to you and me about our personal lives and what He has to do with the particulars of our lives? Is he not Lord of our money and Lord of our entertainment and Lord of our business practices and Lord of our relationships and Lord of our church life? Is he not Lord of all? And he's coming back now in his second coming, King of kings and Lord of lords. And when that, this is not just a hallmarkish kind of good feeling type stuff. This is John's description of the reality of what is certain. Certain future reality. Jesus is coming again. Luke tells us the same thing as he's in the book of Acts. And the apostles have witnessed the ascension of Jesus. And they're troubled and they're wondering. And they're, they're you know, what's next? What, what's, the next what's on the next page? And, and they are told, this Jesus that you've seen will come in like fashion. He's coming again. As I said Wednesday night, the second coming changed my life. Of course, the gospel and the first coming. And uh, I grew up in church and I learned that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again on the third day and, and all those things that are associated with the first coming. Uh, but the church I grew up in said nothing about the return of Christ except they would repeat the Apostles' Creed every Sunday without thinking from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. But we never thought about that or understood what that really meant. And as a young adult, I started to read about the second coming of Christ, and it changed my life. As a Christian, suddenly the Bible came alive to know that history's not just rambling all over the place, but there's a timeline of history, and God created, and God will climax His creation. And Jesus is coming again. And He's not going to be a Democrat or a Republican, or even an American. He is coming in absolute sovereignty as King of kings and Lord of lords. And John says, behold, look at that church. 
see that. In your moments of discouragement, behold, when you think you can't keep on keeping on for the cause, behold, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It changes everything. The second coming of Christ should modify how you live your life tomorrow. Today, of course, also. But when you get up on Monday morning to go do whatever it is you do or not do whatever you don't do, some of you are retired. And, uh, but whatever it is you do on Monday, when you, when you get up and you face the new week, everything about that week should be modified by what John is trying to describe for us here. It says, behold, church, look, church, you're Jesus. This word I was telling you about in my gospel, this word is coming again as a king, as a warrior, a victorious warrior king. And he will, when he gets here, be the Lord of all things, absolutely everything. A lot of the book of Revelation is connected to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, very similar in a lot of places. And uh, Daniel got to the end of his life. If you study eschatology or end times, things in the Bible, and you don't get it all figured out, uh, welcome to the club. The great prophet Daniel would say, welcome to the club. Daniel, who gives us so much prophecy, uh, got to the end and he didn't understand it all. And, and he was told, don't worry about it, Daniel. These things will be understood at the time of the end. But Daniel gets this great uh, vision, and really King Nebuchadnezzar does, and Daniel gets the interpretation of it, and King Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by it, and Daniel explains a series of empires, and finally uh, a rock is cut without human hands, and the rock destroys the image of all those empires. Let me give you just a few verses as we close up this morning. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people that will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms but it itself will endure forever and as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it was crushed uh, that it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now Nebuchadnezzar is an old Babylonian king, and you know, he's just he's confused and wondering and amazed at Daniel, but says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Surely, old Nebuchadnezzar of all people, Nebuchadnezzar says, Surely, Daniel, your God is the God of gods. Your God, Daniel, is the King of kings and the Lord of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Surely, Daniel, that is your God. Back in verse 15 of this morning's passage, there are two places where it's emphatic. There are two ways John could write it, and he writes it in the, the strongest way that you would, given a choice. And John says, And he himself, 
really the best way to render it is shepherds. He himself will shepherd the nations. He will control the nations. Not he will do that. He himself will do that is John's point. And it's not he treads the winepress. He himself treads the winepress of the wine of the anger or the wrath of God. He himself, Jesus, directly involved. I tell you, it's awesome stuff. It's great stuff. Maybe you'll get excited about prophecy and eschatology and end times and the second coming of Christ also. And maybe it'll change your life and put a lot of things back in perspective. A lot of things that really won't matter very much 10,000 years from now or 10 days from now will be put in perspective with the knowledge that your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, King of Kings, is coming again in absolute, absolute righteousness for His people. Join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning. For the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we're grateful that there is truth and there is faith and faithfulness, and Jesus is the best of all of that, and consistently so. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us not only to get that intellectually into our minds, but help us to discern that in our hearts, uh, that we will be excited that history has a target, that you have purposes, that you're working out your great commission. And you're marching us toward the finish of the story. Some of us look forward to a day when, like Richard in the movie, Jesus will ride in in final victory. What an awesome thought. Build us up in that. Encourage us in that. Bless us with those thoughts, we pray. And motivate us with that thought to be faithful ourselves in the calling you've given us as Christians. Thank you for these that have gathered here this morning. I pray for any that are uh, wondering about the gospel. I pray for believing faith and strength of faith. But for many Christians in the room, I pray for strengthened faith today that we might be obedient to you. We look to you in faith with thanksgiving and praise in Jesus' name.